Our sermon this morning is from Daniel chapter 4. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Daniel 4 uh, on page 693. Uh, And if not, you can just uh, open up in the bulletin. It's printed there that you can follow along as well. Um, So yeah, turn there and and, uh, open open up. Have uh, Have you ever had a moment in your life where... Like things are, things are going well, maybe you do something good or cool, you're riding high, right? You think that, th- man, things can't get any better than this. You maybe start to get a little full of yourself and then you're blindsided and, and humiliated in front of, you know, in front of everyone, right? You tell a joke at a party and everyone's laughing and you're like, man, this is... And so then you try to tell another one, but then you like mess up the punchline, or, you know, the, the classic example is like a, in professional sports is someone will guarantee a win in the game coming up this week or they'll spend all week trash talking the, the guy on the other team. That guy's too old, he's not good enough, whatever. And then game day runs around and they, you know, they just get embarrassed. They get run off the, off the field and that kind of thing. And then they, you know, have to slink back to the, to the locker room and pretend like they didn't say any of that stuff beforehand, right? Right. Pride, arrogant, right? You're super cocky, prideful, you know, full of yourself, humbled, humiliated, brought low. That's kind of what, uh, what we see in the, the text today in Daniel 4 is the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar. Up until now, uh, we've seen Daniel chapter 1. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar brought the, these Hebrew boys into his royal court to train them in the ways of Babylon, to teach them to become proper Babylonians. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has this enigmatic dream. No one can explain it to him, but then Daniel does explain it to him and explains that the dream represents these successive uh, kingdoms of man, right? One kingdom after the next, one king after the next, one ruler and powerful person after the next, all the way until God comes and just uh, unseats them all, destroys them all, and sets up his eternal kingdom that will never come to an end. Daniel 3 was uh, the fiery furnace, uh, the golden statue in the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar says, everyone has to, to worship this, this uh, statue that I made. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't. And then they are cast into the fiery furnace, but God saves them uh, from it and, and through it. And so by the time we get to Daniel 4, right, it's the, the book is starting to take shape a little bit. We're starting to kind of see the overarching kind of shape of the, of the book uh, and we, we uh, put this up a few weeks ago, but it's worth uh, looking at it again. Um, the book of Daniel is kind of structured as uh, a, a chiasm. Let's see the, the slide here, um, Zeke. It's like, uh, yeah, kind of a, there we go. So a chiasm is a literary technique that's used a lot in the Bible um, where it's, it's parallelism, right? The, the beginning will parallel the end, and then like kind of the inside, it's like A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A, right? Parallels at the beginning and the end and then the inside and it kind of goes all the way down. And it's, it's done to, to kind of draw the reader's attention uh, to a particular theme or a particular emphasis. Usually it's whatever's right in the middle of the chiasm is kind of the, the big point. Um, but yeah, to, to, so see, we've kind of worked our way through almost the first half of the chiastic structure, only the first third of the book in terms of pa- words on the page. But the first half of the chiastic structure, uh, Daniel in exile, this dream of four kingdoms, Daniel and his friends saved from the fire furnace, which could correspond to stories that we're going to see in the latter half of the book. Daniel in the lion's den kind of corresponds with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their salvation. Uh, the, the, the four kingdoms that we saw in Daniel 2 correspond to 7 and 9. Uh, Daniel's friends go into exile in 1. They return from the exile in, in 10 through 12, or there's a vision of their eventual return from, from the exile. And so the, the main kind of, the big theme that you can kind of see when you look at this chiastic structure of the book is that uh, God sends his people into exile. Like they go into exile, but then while they're in exile, God is with them. God is saving them from sin and certain death while they're in exile. God is defeating and overcoming their enemies and humbling them while they're in exile. And God is ultimately working human history out toward this this telos, this end, wherein God's eternal kingdom is going to reign forever. That's kind of the, the 
thrust of the book of Daniel, right? Is that, that God is, uh, sends his people into exile, he's with them in it, but ultimately he's going to save them from it and bring them back from it and return them from, from exile. And like I said, the, the chiasm uh, usually points it's the reader's attention to the middle, and so Daniel 4 and Daniel 5 are kind of the middle of this structure, and so uh, what they're kind of implying, what they're kind of uh, communicating is that the way in which God saves his people from uh, certain death and destruction that would come in, in exile is by humbling his enemies, humbling the enemies of his people, humbling those people who stand in prideful, violent defiance to God and God's will and God's law. If you, if you stand in opposition to that, God will not be beaten. God will not be overcome. God is going to uh, overtake you and overcome you, and he will bring you low. No one gets the best of God ever. That's not something that anyone can ever do. So that's, that's the, the main uh, thrust of, of the book of Daniel, and we're working our way uh, through it. So today we're going to look at the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's been a, uh, a main character in Daniel 1, 2, and 3. He was the guy uh, who brought the, the guys into exile. He was the guy who uh, had the dream in Daniel 2. He was the guy who sent uh, the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. So we've seen him a lot, and today we're going to see him finally kind of, uh, you know, knocked off of his high horse uh, a, a little bit. And so uh, I am going to uh, pray, and then we are going to work our way through uh, Daniel chapter 4 together. Father in heaven, um, we ask your blessing on these next few minutes as we spend uh, time together in your word. Lord, uh um, grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so we pray, Father, that you would teach us and instruct us. We pray that we could receive and hear the perfect and authoritative and eternal word of God so that we might be conformed to the image of, of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace, be, right, a message from the king, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. So, so chapter 4 is a little bit of an anomaly in that um, the rest of the book uh, seems to have been written by Daniel, and uh, chapter 4 seems to be written in first person, much of it by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. And so presumably uh, it was written by Nebuchadnezzar and then uh, it was given to Daniel or it was included in the, the book of, of Daniel, probably written after the uh, events that it recounts, kind of in recollection of them. So the message from the king is, how great are God's signs, how mighty are God's wonders. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and God's dominion endures from generation to generation, which is beautiful and, and true and, and right. right. God is glorious. God is strong. God is, is mighty. You read that and you think, man, like Nebuchadnezzar has his theology straight. Like he is... You know, man, uh, where did a Babylonian king who resides miles and miles away from the epicenter of Jerusalem, where the true worship of God takes place, where does uh, a guy like that learn that kind of theology? What caused him to learn it and internalize it? And the answer to that is the, the rest of Daniel chapter 4. Uh, Daniel 1 through, like... D- Prior to the events of Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has seen, he's had a front row seat to uh, mighty, sovereign, supernatural uh, acts of God. God intervening and interceding uh, for his people, saving people, divine revelation that no one could ever know, saving people out of a, a fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar has seen a lot of things happen, and he's theoretically in a position to believe and affirm a lot of theological truths, but those things have all happened to other people. And so Daniel 4 is when it happens to, to Nebuchadnezzar. It's amazing how slow the human heart can be to, to 
internalize and believe theological truths when it, when it sees them manifested in the circumstances of the people ar- around him, right? When I, when I see God demonstrate his faithfulness to someone else, right? Or when I see God um, provide for the needs of someone else, right? It's very easy, like Nebuchadnezzar does in chapters 1, 2, and 3, to verbalize, to articulate that I believe that God is sovereign, I believe that God is the king, and yet, um, and often it's until something happens in our own lives that, that, that those, those theological truths that we articulate when we see them in the lives of others actually sink in and, and take root and start to, you know, actually become part of who we are and what we, what we believe. And so Daniel 4 is that moment for Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 4 he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. This is a day in the life of most kings in uh, the ancient world. You're wealthy beyond belief. More money is delivered to you through taxation and trade and tribute than you could, I mean, every day. More money is delivered to you than you could spend in a month if you, if you tried really hard. And they tried really hard, right? Extravagant lifestyles, doing everything that they, that they could. So it says, I was at ease and I was prospering in my, right? Other people are fighting battles for me. Other people are working and they're, they're, er, they're earning for me. Entertainment and luxury is brought to me and I'm at ease in my palace, right? You, as a king in the ancient world, you have total peace of mind. Everything, nothing could be better um, unless you uh, are experiencing anxiety. And unless there's something, you know, that you, something that you're thinking about, dreaming about that you can't shake, which is Nebuchadnezzar's situation. I saw a dream that made me afraid and I lay in bed and the fancies of the vision of my head, they alarmed me which is exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar back in Daniel chapter 2. He had this dream that was robbing him of his sleep. He could, not, he could not get any sleep. He was lying awake at night. Verse 6, So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known the interpretation of the dream. The magicians and the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers, they all came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. So he's, he's loosening up, right? He's kind of... He's uh, being a little bit more chill of a boss. Back in chapter 2, he said, I had this dream, I, in, but in order for you to prove to me that you're not a con artist, you have to not only tell me the interpretation, but you have to uh, tell me the dream. You have to get inside my head and know what the dream was, and then you have to tell me the interpretation. Here he's like, I'll tell you the interpretation. This one is, you know, I'm confident enough that, that um, anyone who can give me an interpretation of this, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to go ahead and tell you. So he tells them the dream, but none of them can interpret it for them. Then verse 8, at last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, Nebuchadnezzar's God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told Daniel the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, let me tell you the visions of my dream that I saw in their, or yeah, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head were these. I saw a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. And the tree grew and became strong, and its top reached all the way up to heaven. And, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, and its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit was abundant, and in it was food for everyone. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw these visions in my head as I lay in bed. And behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, presumably an angel. And and he proclaims aloud, and he says, Chop down the tree, and lop off its branches, and strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit, and let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But... Leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Right? Let, the, let the stump be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the, the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This is the sentence by the decree of 
the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, you, Daniel, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So that's the situation. That's the dream. Big, beautiful tree. Angel, messengers, chop it down. It's chopped down. It's, the stump is left in the grass. It gets rained on, right? You, Daniel, you're supposed to be this spiritual guru. You're supposed to be this, you know, this, this revealer of mysteries and dreams. Go ahead and tell me what it means. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a little while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Then the king answered and he said, Belteshazzar, uh, yeah, then the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or my interpretation uh, alarm you, right? So, so Daniel, is, Daniel is clearly concerned. He's like, he, I don't want to say what this dream means because I think it's bad. And I think if I give you bad news, you might kill me. And the king is like, don't freak out. Like, even if it's bad, it's okay for you to tell me, don't be alarmed, just tell me what the dream means. And Daniel, Daniel's kind of like, uh, I don't, you, might, you say that, but I don't know that you want to really hear it, but okay, I'll give it my best shot. So he says, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. So he's saying, I wish that this dream weren't about you because it's bad news. It's bad news for the person that it's about, so I wish that it was about your enemies. Sadly, it's not. It's about you, but you told me to not be alarmed, so I'm going to go ahead and give you the interpretation of the dream, but just know that it's, it's bad, right? I wish that this was for your enemies and for people who hate you instead of being about you. The tree that you saw, verse 20, which grew and became strong, its top reached to the heaven, it was visible to the whole earth, and its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit was abundant, and there's food for all, and the beasts found uh, shade, and the branches, uh, the birds of the heavens came and lived. That tree is you, O king, you who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Similar to what he was told in chapter 2, that you are the golden head of the statue. You're glorious and magnificent and great and, and powerful and impressive. Everyone looks up to you. Everyone thinks that you are the greatest. Your massive kingdom is a refuge for everyone. Right? You've created jobs. You've created wealth. Right? People come from all over the world to nest in its branches. Right? People are immigrating to Babylon because life is better even for an immigrant there than it was in their hometown. Right? You, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the great and glorious Nebuchadnezzar, everyone wants to be near you. Everyone wants to be uh, taken care of by you. Everyone wants some of your greatness and your glory to rub off on them. You are the great and glorious tree. Verse 23, but because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, come down from heaven and say, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with dew from heaven, and his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation of that part of the dream, O king. It is a decree from the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, and you, Nebuchadnezzar, you will be driven from among men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. In your dream, this messenger from heaven orders that the glorious, beautiful tree be cut down and reduced to a stump sitting in the ground, and in that same way, God is going to cut you down and reduce you to nothing. He's going to drive you out of your kingdom, yank you off of your throne, yank you out of your palace, yank you out of your kingdom, cast you out into the wilderness. You're going to be like a, a beast, an animal, wandering around in the woods, living among beasts in the woods. 
And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you'll be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. You're going to be out in a field, eating grass, getting rained on like a wild animal. And that will be your life for seven periods of time. Whatever that means. I mean, seven years, seven months, seven weeks, seven undetermined periods of time. You are going to live in the wilderness like a, like a wild animal. Until you eventually recognize that God, God is the one who rules over everything, not you. Right? Until you eventually realize that the most, it, it, Nebuchadnezzar does not rule over the kingdom of men and give it to whomever he will, like you seem to be under the impression that you are. It's not you, it's God who rules over the kingdoms of men. God is the one who is sovereign over all things, and God gives authority and, and anything that he wants to anyone that he wants. You might be big, you might be powerful, but you are not God. Nebuchadnezzar, you, your, the authority that you have, and believe me, you have a lot of it. You have more than any mortal being in the world. You have a lot of authority, but the authority that you have is a delegated authority that has been given to you by someone who is over you. Someone who created you and has, has ownership rights over you by virtue of him having created you. Someone that you are accountable to. And that person who has authority over you, who has delegated the authority that you have to you, he can take your authority away whenever he wants. He can humble you before him whenever he wants. There are countless, there are a number of ways that you can sin against God. It's true that all sin renders us guilty before God, worthy of the, the just condemnation of God. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. James 2, if you, if you break just one point of the law, then you're guilty of breaking all of the law. All sin, big sins, little sins, all sin renders us guilty before God. It's all true. But it's also true that different sins have different consequences, seemingly both in this life and uh, in the next, different degrees of uh, severity that prompt different kinds of responses from God. I think you can make a case that maybe the worst sin or the most dangerous sin or the sin that angers God more than anything else, or, or the sin that every other sin emanates from and, and comes from, is the sin of pride. Pride seems to have been the, the first sin, Adam and Eve in the garden. The motive uh, for why they eat the forbidden fruit was that they're told that if you eat it, you'll be like God. If, if, so, so there's this pride in there. I, I want to be like God. And so if I sin in this way, I will be like God. Um, Satan's uh, sin and fall was before that. And we can kind of read uh, texts that are uh, seemingly about it or at least referring to it. Uh, Isaiah 14 says that Satan's motivation was that, that I will ascend to heaven. I will ascend above the stars uh, of God. I will set my throne on high. Satan rebelled against God because Satan wanted to have his throne above God's throne. I want to be in charge. I want to be, in, I want to be above God. Right? Adam and Eve, I want to be like God. Satan, I want to be above God. Pride seems to be the, the very kind of primary, the, the, the sin from which all other sins uh, emanate. John Stott says as much. He says that, that um, pride is the essence of all sin. Pride is the stubborn refusal to let God be God. Pride is the sinful ambition to take 
God's place. Pride is an attempt to dethrone God and to enthrone ourselves in his place. Pride is self-deification. C.J. Mahaney says that pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. Sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their... In fact, um, in fact uh, he doesn't even use the word pride. Um, he finds that the word pride doesn't uh, adequately capture the severity of the sin that it's referring to. So when he, you know, instead of confessing to the sin of pride... Uh, he'll he'll uh, replace the word pride with the phrase contending with God for supremacy. Instead of saying, in that moment I was being prideful, he'll say, in that moment I was contending with God for supremacy, which is what pride is. It's, it's the desire to be exalted like God should be exalted. It's wanting to have the status that is rightfully God's, wanting to have the authority that is rightfully God's, the glory that is rightfully God's, the supremacy that is rightfully God's. And, and that's why God hates pride as much as he does. God despises pride because God is not just incredibly or or massively glorious. God is infinitely glorious. God is infinitely deserving of all glory and all honor and all worship and all praise. And God knows that he is infinitely deserving of all of those things. And so God is rightly moved to anger when created beings contend with him for the glory and the supremacy that is rightfully his. That, that infuriates God. God knows that he is infinitely glorious and deserving, and he knows that as, as glorious as man is and as deserving of, of honor as man is, it is human beings are, uh, you know, Nowhere, it doesn't even register on the scale compared to how glorious and deserving of worship God is. John Calvin says, God cannot bear to see his glory appropriated by a creature in even the smallest degree. So intolerable to him is the sacrilegious arrogance of those who, by praising themselves, obscure his glory as far as they can. God hates human pride. He despises it, and it makes him furious. the big idea that we see in this passage with King Nebuchadnezzar. And so the application then is, is, is clear. We, as the people of God, should be looking carefully for and, and uh, intentionally rooting out and, and killing and mortifying sinful pride in our Lives. We should be repenting of it and turning away from it and doing everything that we can to cultivate humility in our lives and in our hearts. Isaiah 66 says, This is the one to whom I will look, to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. So God looks to those who are humble. Humility draws the gaze of our sovereign God. On the flip side, James 4 says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So humility draws God's gaze. He loves it. And pride evokes God's anger. And he hates it. And he opposes it. Pride that takes many forms, right? Self-exaltation. 
I'm the best. I'm better than everyone else. I'm smarter than everyone else, right? The the pride of self-indulgence, right? I deserve more than everyone else. I want all of the best things for myself instead of anyone else. The pride of of, um, self-centeredness or self-preoccupation, right? It's all about me. I'm always thinking about me. What's in it for me? The pride of self-pity. Woe is me. I can't believe this is happening to me. How dare they do that to me? Treat me like that. Not give me all of the things that I feel that I deserve. The essence of pride is is always thinking of yourself. And the essence of humility is thinking about ourselves less than we instinctively want to. The essence of humility is putting God at the center of our world and our life and our heart, and putting the needs of others before the needs of ourselves. God hates pride. God loves humility. And God tells Nebuchadnezzar, because of your pride, I am going to cast you out. You've been standing tall, but I'm going to bring you low. You have been uh, you know, mighty and powerful and glorious, but I am going to strip you of all of, of that. But that's not the end of the story, right? Verse 26. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, so too, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Meaning that it's been bad news up until now, but it's not all bad news because one day after seven periods of time, you are going to come to your senses. Like the, like the the prodigal son, right? You're gonna you're gonna be just you know bestial and and just you know out in this animalistic rage and and just kind of delusional state. And you're like the like the son, like the prodigal son. You're going to come to your senses and you're going to know and believe that God is the one who is sovereign and not you. God is the true king, not you. God is the one who is worthy of worship and honor and not you. And then God is going to give you your kingdom back. And you can return to the palace and return to your throne. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Right? Because of what I just told you is going to happen, the interpretation of your dream, everything you can expect, uh, here's my counsel. Break off your sins... By practicing righteousness, break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So, so the, the main sin that we've seen God point his, you know, put his finger on is that, that of pride and, and self, you know, self-exaltation and self-importance and self-glorification. But Daniel says uh, what you should do to repent of said sinful pride is to show mercy to people who are oppressed, to interpose for people who cannot stand up for themselves and and care for them and and protect them. If you do that, then perhaps there will be... uh, if, If pride and arrogance is too... Um abstract of a concept for you if it's too ethereal it's it's all internal how do i know if i'm being prideful or 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 not right it's not observable it's not verifiable then a good place to start a good litmus test to determine how prideful or how humble your heart is is to look at how you treat others the more you hurt others and take advantage of others like nebuchadnezzar was doing in all likelihood, that's evidence of sinful pride in your heart. And the more you love others and care for others and show mercy to others, in all likelihood, that's evidence of humility in your heart. So Daniel says, show mercy to vulnerable people that you have been oppressing. But he also... He also... so. It's interesting, too, because Daniel, Daniel just got finished with this big in, interpretation of this dream that's pretty, it's kind of a downer, 
right? This is going to happen, right? It's not this might happen. It's not maybe if you, you know, depending, if you don't change your ways, that it's, it's, you're, you're this big glorious tree and you're going to be cast out. And, and so full stop, that is what's going to happen. So Daniel, Daniel's exhortation in verse 27 is not giving him this ultimatum. Either you break off your sins and practice righteousness and show mercy to people, uh, and if you do, then God will not bring on all of the judgment that I just said was coming. No, it's, he says, do, just do that. Because it's, that is what is right and good and, and just. Repent and be righteous and be merciful because that is the right and godly thing to, to do. Don't show mercy to people because God has promised you that he will relent if you do. Don't show mercy to people because you are under the impression that doing so is going to obligate God to treat you better uh, if you, than, than if you didn't. Don't show mercy to people because you think that by doing so you're going to trigger some loophole clause in the prophecy that will mean that it's not going to, to come about, right? The repentance is not a, a deal that you strike with God. It's not a quid pro quo where I'm going to uh, act in this way if you give me this thing that I, that, right, if you give me life and health and happiness, then I'll stop being selfish. That's not real repentance. And so Daniel says, practice real repentance Right? Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. I don't know. Maybe God will ruin it. Maybe he won't. It looks like he probably won't, given how sure the prophecy was. But your repenting does not obligate God to do anything. You're, and, and, and if you are truly, really repenting, it's not going to come from an ulterior motive of wanting to bind God's hand and make him treat you the way that you want to be treated. Real repentance comes not from an ulterior motive, but from a a broken heart. Where you recognize that your sin has offended a God who is holy and righteous, and it's, it's broken his, it's made him sad. And it should make you sad. So you want, to sin, you want to stop sinning not as a negotiating ploy to increase your leverage. You want to stop sinning because you love God and you hate sin because of what sin does and how sin damages your relationship with God. That's true repentance. It's not if you repent, then God will relent and none of this judgment will come on you. It's if you repent, perhaps there will be a lengthening of your prosperity. Maybe, maybe not. But you don't repent because you have that assurance in hand. You repent because God is glorious and righteous and his character demands repentance. You repent because sin is exceedingly sinful and sin warrants being repented of and turned away from. And in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, right? There's a shift, right? This is now Daniel, presumably, narrating this paragraph. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. It's a year later. Walking on, just like, just like David was before he fell into temptation with Bathsheba. He's walking on the roof of his palace. And the king answered and he said, Is this not... Great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. It should should give you chills, right? The idea of a human being standing before God, his creator, and speaking like that, right? I built this kingdom with my power as a residence for my glory and my majesty. You ever like heard someone describe visiting the Grand Canyon or you know looking up at the sky in the middle of the night when you're out in the country and there's no 
you know, light, no natural light. It's, they're, they're, they'll say something like, man, I was overwhelmed by how big and glorious and impressive the, the created world is. And so uh, it, it made me appreciate how big and transcendent God is. And then by contrast, how small I am. Nebuchadnezzar says, I see this beautiful, glorious kingdom creation, and all it makes me think of is how big I am, and how impressive I am, and how powerful I am. Yeah, pride feels gross and icky, and it's foolish and absurd and, and delusional. And ultimately, verse 31, it's, it's ultimately self-destructive, right? While the words were still in the king's mouth, literally while he's saying that sentence about how great and glorious I am, the voice fell from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and for seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. Your kingdom is ripped from you. I'm going to reduce you to nothing and you are going to remain there until you recognize that that you are not God. You are not in charge. You are not sovereign over everything. I am. You, Nebuchadnezzar, have no power except that which was given to you by me, the God of heaven. Until you acknowledge that, you're going to be walking around on all fours, right? getting rained on. That's how God treats prideful people. He humbles them. If you spend your life cultivating pride in service of self, for the glory of self, then that's what you can expect from God, that he will humble you, he will humiliate you, he will bring you low. Verse 33, then immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and he ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as the eagle's feathers and his nails were like birds. This guy is out of his mind. He's, you know, probably showing signs of clinical insanity and and delusion. And just yesterday he was on a golden throne in his royal palace, the most powerful man in the world. Now he's out in the woods, can't even formulate a coherent sentence. He's walking on all fours. He's eating grass like an animal. This is, a, this is, this is going from the highest of heights to the deepest of, of, of depths. And God is saying, you thought that you were powerful The only power you have was the power that I gave you. You were king because I made you the king. You remained king because I allowed you to remain as king. And the second I want you out, you are out. Verse 34, at the, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing compared to him. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand. No one can say to God, why have you done that? What have you, have you done? God is the king. God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one who acts as, I don't do whatever I want. God does whatever he wants. I do whatever I want within this narrow little confines of what God has allowed me to do and given me to the capacity to do and permitted me to do, but God is the one who is the sovereign king. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me, and my counselors and my lords, they came and sought me, and I was established again in my kingdom, and still even more greatness was added to me. I acknowledged the greatness of God, and God, just like Job at the end of the book of Job, God restored me 
back to where I was. Only now, instead of being prideful, I've been humbled. Verse 37, And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Make no mistake, God is able to humble those who walk in. There's, there is no one who is strong enough that God is not stronger. There is no one who is so powerful that God is not more powerful. There is no one who is so high and exalted that God cannot humble them at any moment that he desires. And Nebuchadnezzar finally sees that and submits to that and says, God is, I'm not God, God is God. God is the king. God is the creator. I am a a vice regent at best. I am someone with delegated authority. I am a creature. And I bow before the greatness and the sovereign authority of, of God. Friends, you have a choice. You can recognize the sovereignty and the authority and the glory of God now. You can humble yourself now. You can bow before God now. Or you can wait and God will humble you just like he did Nebuchadnezzar. The choice is not humble myself before God, or go on exalting myself for the rest of my life on into eternity. The choice is humble myself before God now, or eventually God will do it for me. No one wants to humble themselves. It's not fun. It's not pleasant. It's hard work. But it is far better and far less painful than being humbled and being humiliated by God. Nebuchadnezzar learned that the hard way. We'd be wise to learn from his mistakes rather than repeating them and walking in his footsteps. But here's Here's what's even more remarkable, right? The, the story doesn't end here, doesn't end with Daniel in Babylon or with Nebuchadnezzar. Hundreds of years later, there's another man, there's another king who would humble himself Not like Nebuchadnezzar who was humbled by God against his will because he refused to submit. No, this other other man, this other king uh, willingly humbled himself before his heavenly father. Jesus Christ sat on a throne that was far more splendid and glorious than Nebuchadnezzar's throne in a kingdom that was far superior to Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And Jesus willingly, volitionally, left his throne, willingly came into the wilderness that is this fallen world, into the presence of these animalistic beasts, called sinful human beings, Jesus willingly humbled himself and obeyed his heavenly Father even to the point of death on a cross. Not as punishment for his own pride, like Nebuchadnezzar, but rather Jesus died as a sacrifice to take the punishment that was earned and rightly deserved by prideful sinners like, like you and me. And Jesus did it so that we could be saved and reconciled, right? so, so that anyone who trusts in Christ can be saved from the wrath of God, welcomed into the presence of God, reconciled indelibly forever and ever for all of eternity. Jesus is the true king who humbled himself 
for the sake of the people that he loves, and Jesus is calling us to humble ourselves and to trust in him instead of trusting in ourselves and to live for him instead of living for ourselves. Which is what we declare together at the communion table. Right, we're declaring together to one another and to God that we trust in Christ together. We trust in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, and in his victorious resurrection. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave thanks and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian, if you're a member of the family of God, the Lord's Supper is our opportunity to remember the gospel together celebrate the gospel together as a family. After I pray, the musicians will, will play some music for us. We can come forward down the, the middle uh, aisle. Matt and I will uh, hand the elements out. You can receive them. Take them back to your seat. Take a minute. Pray. Do business with God. Repent of your sin. Receive the grace that he freely offers to you. And then eat and, and drink. If you're not a Christian, we would ask that you not take communion because the Bible teaches against that. Instead, we would invite you to take Christ and to trust in Jesus, to trust him to save you from your sin so that you can be reconciled to him forever and ever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that you humbled yourself and gave your life as a sacrifice for sinners. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to humble ourselves, to trust in you instead of trusting in ourselves. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.